This is Ira on Sports, 95.9, 106.9 West Palm Beach. We're honored to have Clayton Truder on. Uh, Clayton is an author of a new book that just came out called Loserville. Uh, really like the history of sports in Atlanta, Georgia. Clayton, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Ira. It's a pleasure. So it, my, the book is a great book, and I, I have to admit that I just love reading about stadiums and how stadiums get built and how teams bring things. It's just one of those things I'm just obsessed with. I'm always looking at what the Vegas is doing and, and what Oakland is doing. But you really looked in terms of Atlanta, and it and the story of Atlanta was in this from 66 to 72, they added four sports teams and two stadiums and brought them in, and, and you were able to build that. And the point is they were able to get the – uh, wherewithal from the city and the momentum to build these stadiums, but then nobody came. You know, the whole story of you build it, it'll come. And then it's like they never, and as much as we criticize Atlanta fans, even now going to Truist Park and the playoffs, that they've had that problem since the early 70s or late 60s with that. And, and that's one. So that's sort of what I got, the gist I got from your book. Absolutely. I, I see it as an origin story for the modern sports business. Atlanta is really the first expansion city that has no connection to the big leagues whatsoever, that goes out, hypes its way into becoming a major league town. They have a mayor named Ivan Allen who runs explicitly on a platform called Major League City. The idea is he wants Atlanta to have the prestige, the sense of civic unity of having pro sports. So the city goes out, they lure the Braves, they lure the Falcons, the Hawks and the Flames all to the city build the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, build the Omni Coliseum, and things don't turn out quite as expected. And Atlanta's certainly not alone in this. They, in many ways, pioneered this approach to getting teams, this very corporatized approach to luring pro sports. If you look at San Diego, if you look at Tampa, if you look at New Orleans, Charlotte, so many cities, particularly in the Sun Belt, modeled their approach to becoming major league after what Atlanta did. And oftentimes you find the same problems. Like Atlanta, a lot of City's got a lot of teams really quickly, and it proved tough to digest. Atlanta and a number of other expansion cities also have a lot of transplants from other parts of the country who bring in existing sports loyalties. And whether it's Atlanta or San Diego or wherever you look, um, people didn't just start being interested in sports when the big leagues got to town, particularly in warm weather places. There were a lot of abundant outdoor activities to engage, and you didn't need the major leagues to be a participant in sports. And there were plenty of local attractions, too, in places like Atlanta, Certainly college football, stock car racing, boating, golfing, um, professional wrestling had a tremendous audience, <laughs> a, a wide range of demographics had a wide, wide range of sports that appealed to them. And people didn't simply give up on them because there were teams wearing Atlanta across their chest. And but they rode the way between 60 and 76, like the NFL, people think the NFL now with 32 teams, they only had 13 teams. The NBA only had eight. Major League Baseball only 16. So that's when they really started expanding. You saw when Cleveland moved to L.A. and the Rams moved out, which is ironically, they're playing in the Super Bowl right now in, in a week. And, uh, <laughs> and certainly so. But that was all you had all that excitement in terms of the towns were the, the leagues were looking to expand. Now it's a lot harder to get the teams. You know, people are trying to whatever. But it seemed like back in those between 60 and 76, the leagues were looking to expand. Atlanta's like, look, we're in the South. We're, we, want, we want to show everybody in the country that we're made it. We're a big league town. And I think the, the idea of being a big league town is to bring big league teams in there. Yes, absolutely. And Atlanta takes advantage of the competition those leagues largely faced. Even with baseball, with the prospective Continental League, that played a role in baseball expansion. With the NBA, you have the ABA. With, with hockey, you have the World Hockey Association. And with the NFL, obviously, you have the American Football League. So there's a lot of pressure out there, a lot of competition for cities. 
Um, it's almost inevitable pro sports was going to grow out of being something that exe- basically existed in the Great Lakes region and then the, in the Northeast Corridor. As the country expanded, as more cities had enough people with enough discretionary income to get to afford uh, to go to games, it was inevitable the leagues were going to expand. And a city like Atlanta played a, a pioneering role in making that possible. But it was like, you know, they brought the Braves from Milwaukee. Milwaukee had the Braves had moved up from Boston to Milwaukee, only been to Milwaukee like 10 years. They had uh, Hank Aaron, Eddie Matthews. I mean, they had a team that is an exciting team. They weren't drawing well in Milwaukee from another factors because they played in a terrible stadium. That they In Atlanta, you had in the book, you said how they built the stadium before the Braves even, they've announced the Braves. But almost from day one, they didn't even draw. Like they drew, they sold out the first game, but then they were getting terrible attendance. And you mentioned how when Aaron had his home run chase, there were some games, like when he hit 711 home runs, they had like 1,300, 1,400 fans show up. The attendance, we criticize Atlanta now, even today, Atlanta gets criticized constantly, but it has been a problem since like the late 60s with the attendance. Well, absolutely. I mean, in the fall, the Braves are like, oh, God, high school football starting. So from like the beginning of September onward, the idea that you were ever going to get a crowd to a Braves game unless they were in a pennant race was unlikely. There'd be five or six football games in Fulton County alone that would have 10,000 people at them. The Braves would have three or four thousand people in the stands. In 1969, when the Braves win the NL West in the first year of the divisional configuration, on the weekend when they host the Mets for two home games, those games are the fourth and fifth best drawing sporting events in the region that weekend. The Georgia football game is one, Georgia Tech is two, and number three is the Falcons game because Johnny Unitas was coming to town and people were excited to see him. He'd never come to Atlanta before. So the Braves were second fiddle even in the weekend of their greatest triumph in their early years in town. And then you mentioned about even the Falcons, when the Falcons were able to play off the whole fight between the AFL and the NFL, when the, and each team, wanted, each league wanted, sort of wanted to be in the, in the Atlanta market, and they initially sold well. They were selling the tickets for the corporate sponsors in Atlanta, but no one would show up for the games, and then they were terrible. I, I like the one stat you said. In 1967, they drafted 16 players and none made the team. It sounds like here down in Miami a little bit somehow, some of their drafting, but <laughs> that would be hard to imagine. You would draft 16 players and not one person makes the team. Well, I, th- I think a problem in this era in particular, and I think one of the, the themes of my book is the significance of having ownership that relies on experts in the particular sport to run the teams. In this expansion era, that was not the common sense. You had, for example, with the Falcons, a man named Rankin Smith, whom everybody I spoke to liked very much, thought he was very pleasant, got along with his family, but he was an insurance salesman, and he would rely on guys who were his associates to play these prominent roles in the team's organization. Uh, Over time, franchises have gotten better at having football experts or hockey experts or baseball experts or or whatever the activity is playing those central roles. But I I think to some extent you had a lot of businessmen who got involved with pro sports who underestimated the degree of specificity to this particular business. And it certainly showed on the field in a lot of places. I mean, it was funny in your book, you mentioned how the Atlanta Hawks came and for the basketball team, they came from St. Louis. And again, they they were run terribly. But you said the one team that sort of got the town excited was the Flames uh, who came in and and nobody, and there was not even an, a hockey rink at all of Georgia and no one knew the rules, but people just got excited about the game. Sort of when the Kings, when the LA Kings came to LA and people were like, we don't know follow hockey, but it became popular. Uh, but it was like, that was the one team that sort of got everyone excited about, it, even though they had no, no following. There was nobody who's playing hockey or anything. It just became po- popular for a number of years. But even then the Flames after 10 years left. 
Yeah, I, I think I think that's an issue a lot of Sun Belt markets have faced when they've gotten the NHL. There has been this initial wave of appeal because it's such a novel experience, particularly when Atlanta did. They were completely on an island. It's not like it is now where there's like, you know, a half dozen NHL teams in the South. They were there was nothing like it as an attraction. It was the go to night out for Atlanta's elite for several years. But eventually that waned a little bit. And in particular, they had ownership trouble uh, with their owner. Tom Cousins got into some issues with his real estate business. He needed some some cash and ends up selling the team in a very lucrative deal to some oil men from Alberta. So certainly what you see in Atlanta, not only with the Flames, but later with the Thrashers and uh, with a number of the other uh, southern and western NHL markets, the Coyotes most notably right now, you, you just see the same problems occurring over and over again. But oftentimes these teams develop this niche base of appeal that there's 10,000 people who are just mad about the team. But developing the casual fan who on a Tuesday night is going to turn in in the middle of the second period and stick with the game, I think that proves to be the difficulty for a lot of the uh, southern and western hockey teams. I mean, the name, the title of your book is called Loserville, but as we think about the Braves, I mean, they just won the World Series, and uh, they had uh, many years of uh, winning their division. Everybody knows, certainly if you're Met fans, you would not be, would not be called Atlanta Loserville. But the point is that even the time, though, that when Ted Turner bought the teams, I think that stabilized the Hawks and, and, and the Braves. They weren't going to leave because Turner's investment and, and everything. But again, it's just, I think that was the, fa- the factor of these teams is, is that even when they've won, they haven't drawn that well. And that's as opposed to they've really not ever captured totally the, the market. Oh, completely. The title Loserville is not a commentary on the present. Atlanta's obviously doing very well with Atlanta United and the Braves and Georgia just down the road winning the national championship. It's a certainly a commentary in the 60s and 70s. But in terms of attendance, I think one of the major problems is you have a region where there's so many people in and out of it. Not only transplants from the north, but also Atlanta is such a hub of transplants from across the south. People going there because it's such a major economic center that uh, people, I guess they tend to relate to the teams more as they would any other consumer product, as opposed to the teams being this durable source of loyalty. You're from Boston or New York or Philadelphia. Your dad went to the games and his dad went to the games and his dad went to the games. It's this multi-generational kind of family epic for a lot of people supporting these teams. In a way, it just isn't for the Braves, not only because they're a newer team, but also because there's so much uh, movement in and out of uh, the region. It's like a TV show. Like some people, they, they watch Yellowstone all the time. They can't miss it. They go, well, this year it's bad, so I'm not going to watch it anymore. You know, so anyone knows the, the New York teams, you know, the, they watch it even more when their teams are bad to yell at them. But the one thing that and I find so intriguing is because we're following the Tampa Bay, what they're going to do with their stadium. And certainly we're in South Florida with the Marlins Park and how they were, that was able to develop mm-hmm. it. Atlanta continually builds stadiums. Like when people say, wait, you had the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, then you had the Georgia Dome, and the Georgia Dome, wait, they tore it down? Like there was only, you know, it was, it was only in existence for a few years, and now you have the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. They keep figuring out how to build stadiums. The Braves now are on their truest park, their third stadium. So some of these other cities like Tampa just simply cannot build stadiums. And look at Oakland and look at L.A. They've had all these, and football for 25 years because no one could build a stadium. But Atlanta has shown one thing is that there's a, they can figure out how to build these stadiums. Well, I, I think in Atlanta it seems to be an, an issue of ownership, that every ownership group that comes in wants their own building that's tailored to their particular wants. In the case of the Georgia Dome, that's in large part because Arthur Blank comes in, buys the team, ends up wanting essentially a, a venue of his own, which becomes Mercedes-Benz Stadium, the home of both the Falcons as well as the Atlanta United soccer team, which is drawn well. One thing Atlanta has gotten better at over time, though, is finding another way to pay for it than directly just asking the taxpayers Back in 65, when they built Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, it's just a property tax. 
everybody in town is paying for the stadium. That does not tend to fly in most markets now. You've got to find some other more clever way to do it. Have a tax on rental cars or hotels or, or, or meals or uh, a tax on alcohol or cigarettes or lottery tickets, something of that like. So people are choosing to be taxed or it's the idea that it's out-of-towners being taxed. Atlanta has certainly used some of those methodology. They've been good at getting corporate sponsorships for the stadium. Arthur Blank actually footed a big part of the bill for the uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium. So the percentage of the stadium that is publicly financed with that stadium is roughly the same as the uh, back in Atlanta Fulton County Stadium back in the 60s. So even though it's this you know billion-dollar epic kind of stadium, it, it, as, as a matter of public expenditure, it's basically the same as it was back in the 60s. In the case of Turner Field, they did a good job getting the taxpayers to finance it nationally because of the IOC element of it being an Olympic stadium. Yeah, and then certainly, I mean, I was just there for the Hawks game, and I think the Hawks with Trey Young, again, it's the superstar player that brings people in. You mentioned the book about Pistol Pete when he played there and how he drew some of the attendance, even though they didn't play well. Uh, I think that's the one thing. I mean, the, you can start to see the Hawks starting to get a, a big pull. I mean, I paid a lot for my ticket, so I knew that there was <laughs> for the playoff game against the Bucks. So there was definitely an, you know, interest in, in the Hawks right now. I think you could argue even at this point that he's the second most consequential player in the history of the franchise behind Wilkins because he is, he's become such a national focus, become such a draw, not quite at the level Wilkins was at his peak, you know, the human highlight reel of that. But I think there's more focus on the Hawks now, not only because of their on-court success, but people specifically wanting to see Trey Young play. Um, during the Maravich era, the problem was the team, which had been pretty good when it got to town, the St. Louis Hawks had won their division in their final year, but they blew up their roster rebuilt around Maravich, and it just didn't work. Um, so they struggled for much of that time period, even though Maravich was a particularly excellent attraction on the road. Even though the Hawks drew poorly at home, for two of, two of the four seasons Maravich was in Atlanta, the Hawks were the best-drawing road team in the league because people who heard about Pete Maravich playing at LSU wanted a chance to see him in person across the country. Yeah, I mean, about Trey Young, when I went to the store, I mean, they just sell, you can't even hardly buy Hawks jerseys. Everything is Trey Young jerseys. It was, he is yeah. super duper duper popular. And then the one last thing is they just finished the Truist Park, and I haven't been to this one. State baseball teams I haven't been to, uh, and it's but it's in Cobb County, and I guess that was one of the issues is they chose, they couldn't get, they could get the stadium built downtown, and where the, the Mercedes-Benz is built, and where Omni, or the Phipps Arena is, but what they call it, State Farm now, and then uh, so they ended yeah. up building it in uh, Cobb County. And then I guess there was some controversy about saying, okay, now we're going to build it in the suburbs, even though, look, Detroit's built in the suburbs. A lot of these cities had been building stadiums in the suburbs and they moved it back to the central business district. Yeah, sir. I mean, certainly part of the issue with that is it was done in kind of a cloak and dagger fashion. Like all of a sudden they announced, hey, we got a stadium deal in Cobb County, kind of out of nowhere. I mean, there'd been rumbles about stuff like that, but the idea that this was actually in place happened essentially overnight. And it was also weird because it was this, this kind of unusual special taxing district of businesses uh, in a particular uh, business zone that ended up paying for it was their financing mechanism, which prevented, which taxpayers really didn't have any say over it the way it, uh, it, it came into being. I mean, it certainly does reflect where much of the fan base was. Um, at the time, the Braves released a map of where these season ticket holders were for the Braves. And baseball tends to have fewer than other sports because it's such a long calendar. Nonetheless, the vast majority of them were in affluent northern suburbs like uh, Cobb County, so it certainly reflects where their strongest base of support was. 
Well, Clayton, I really appreciate you coming on Iron Sports. I know we're here in West Palm Beach, close to Atlanta. Everybody who has to fly sometimes has to go through Atlanta. But it was yeah. uh, great to have you on our show to talk about your book, Loserville. Best luck in terms of sales. And it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, any way you want to go look at it, it's, it's available uh, to everybody now. Thanks so much for having me. This is a real pleasure. Thanks a lot, Clayton.